You're listening to Kalam Institute's podcast series, Sira, Life of the Prophet, by Sheikh Abdul Nasir Jangda. Visit us on the web at kalaminstitute.org or find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash kalaminstitute. Bismillahi walhamdulillah wa salatu wa salamu ala rasulillahi wa ala alihi wa sahbihi ajma'in. Inshallah, continuing with our series on the life of the Prophet Asiratu Nabawiyah. Today we're going to be, um, actually we've reached a point in the seerah where the Prophet migrates from Makkah to Medina, makes the move from Makkah to Medina, arrives of course first in Quba, stays there for about a week and a half, advances on into Medina, establishes the masjid of the Prophet takes up his temporary residence in the home of Abu Ayyub al-Ansari, radiallahu ta'ala anhu, may Allah be pleased with him. And at that particular time, the Prophet ﷺ surveys Medina and its circumstances, its people, the economic, the religious, the social, political situation in Medina. The Prophet ﷺ starts meeting with local leaders in Medina. He meets with some of the key Jewish tribes in Medina. So we've talked about all of this over the last number of weeks. What basically happens and transpires at this time, once the Prophet ﷺ himself arrives in Medina, settles in Medina, establishes the masjid, takes care of the immediate things that needed to be done as soon as he arrived, things that needed that required his attention immediately after his arrival in Medina, the next thing the Prophet ﷺ turned his attention towards was actually now bringing over his family. Because if you keep in mind, one of the things that I've emphasized throughout the seerah, going back to the childhood of the Prophet ﷺ, then the adulthood of the Prophet ﷺ, his marriage, raising of children, and even the early era, the early part of the Meccan seerah, one of the things that I've continuously emphasized is the aspect of family, which is very visible, which is very prominent in the seerah, in the life of the Prophet ﷺ. It is not an exaggeration by any means, to call the Prophet ﷺ not just a family man, but the family man. Meaning that the Prophet ﷺ was obviously a family man in the sense of the word that, in the literal sense of the word where he had a family. But the Prophet ﷺ was the ultimate family man. He was the best husband. He was the best father possible. And so what we what now obviously comes into play is the prophet ﷺ is missing his family he longs for his family and he wanted to get there and establish everything and make sure everything was set and safe and sound before he brought his family over so now was that time one of the things that i did not touch upon earlier because i didn't want us to get bogged down into that discussion at that particular point was that if we go back about a year before the migration a year before the Hijrah. So we're basically talking about after Khadija radiallahu ta'ala anha passed away, and three weeks later Abu, uh, Abu Talib, the uncle of the Prophet also passes away. About two years after that, the Prophet for these two years was a single father, raising his daughters on his own. His eldest daughter, Zainab radiallahu ta'ala anha, she was married to a man by the name of Abu al-As uh, ibn Rabi'ah, and his three daughters were not married. Uh, actually, his second daughter was also married, um, Ruqayya 
radiallahu ta'ala anha. And then he had two daughters that were not married at this time. That was Ummu Kulthum. And lastly, Fatima radiallahu ta'ala anha. Fatima radiallahu ta'ala anha particularly at this time was still quite young. And so the Prophet ﷺ for all intents and purposes is a single father. Raising his daughters and taking care of them himself. And together as a family they're recovering and you know, re- basically recovering and uh, from the loss of Khadija radiallahu ta'ala anha, the wife of the Prophet ﷺ and the mother of the Prophet ﷺ's daughters, the mother of his children. One of the interesting things that happened, so this is about a year before the Hijrah, so we're taking a look back. But I kept it for this particular time because we could address it all at one place, at one time, right here. And that is that at that time, two years after Khadija radiallahu ta'ala anha passed away, the books of uh, Sirah, the books of the narration of the life of the Prophet ﷺ mention that Khawla bint al-Hakim comes to the Prophet ﷺ. This is the wife of Uthman bin Mad'un radiallahu ta'ala anhu. So Khawla bint Hakim, she comes to the Prophet ﷺ and she says, Ya Rasulullah, ala tazawwaj? O Messenger of Allah, will you not remarry? And the Prophet ﷺ says, Man, who would you suggest that I get married to? So she says at that time, In shi'ta bikran wa in shi'ta thayyiban. That if you want, you can marry someone who hasn't been married before. Alright? Or you could marry someone who has been previously married. So the Prophet ﷺ asks her, فَمَنِلْ bikr, Who would it be if I was to marry someone who was never married before? And she responds by saying, ibnatu ahabbi khalqillahi ilayk. The daughter of the most beloved of God's creation to you. Meaning, the person that is the most beloved to you, marry his daughter. And that was Aisha ibn to Abi Bakr radiallahu ta'ala anhuma. Aisha, the daughter of Abu Bakr radiallahu anhu. The Prophet asks her, Well, woman is Thayyib. Who would you suggest for me to marry if I was to marry someone who was previously married? So she said, Sauda bint Zama'a. I would suggest Sauda, the daughter of Zama'a. Zama'a, he was one of the leaders of the Quraysh. So I would, mar- I would suggest his daughter Sauda. قَدْ آمَنَتْ بِكَ وَتَبَعَتْكَ عَلَى مَا تَقُولُ She believed in you early on. Sauda radiallahu ta'ala anha and her husband, uh, Sakran, they were some of the early converts to Islam. They accepted Islam way back in the early days of Mecca. And as the books of history actually tell us, and we'll talk about this a little bit more today, but eventually um, they migrated, her and her husband, they both migrated to Habasha. But anyway, so she suggests that um, you marry Sauda radiallahu ta'ala anha because she believed in you back in the early days and she followed you in everything that you instructed, everything that you said. Meaning she is a sound believer. So he tells Khawla, فَذْهَبِي فَدْرُكِيهِمَا عَلَيَّ So go and make the proposal on my behalf. فَدَخَلَتْ بَيْتَ أَبِي بَكَرْ فَقَالَتْ فَقَالَتْ يَا أُمَّ رُمَان مَاذَا أَدْخَلَ اللَّهُ عَلَيْكُمْ مِنَ الْخَيْرِ وَالْبَرَكَةِ So she goes to the house of Abu Bakr radiallahu ta'ala anhu, approaches the mother of Aisha radiallahu ta'ala anha, whose name is Ummu Ruman. And she says, oh, Ummu Ruman, can you guess what type of blessing and what type of good Allah has brought into your home? And she says, what is that? She says, أَرْسَلَنِي رَسُولَ اللَّهِ صَلَى اللَّهِ عَلَيْهِ عَائِشَةً 
the Prophet of Allah has sent me to your house to bring a proposal on his behalf for your daughter Aisha. So Umm Ruman says, Wait, unduri Abu Bakr hatta yatiyani. Wait till Abu Bakr radiallahu ta'ala, the father, comes home. When Abu Bakr radiallahu ta'ala came home, again she says, Oh Abu Bakr, can you imagine? Can you guess what type of blessing God has brought into your home? He says, What is that? He said that she informs him that, you know, the Messenger of Allah has sent me to propose on his behalf to Aisha radiallahu anha. So Abu Bakr radiallahu ta'ala says, وَهَلْ تَصْلُحُ لَهُ إِنَّمَا هِيَ إِبْنَةُ أَخِيهِ Abu Bakr radiallahu ta'ala was aware of how much love the Prophet had for him. And the Prophet used to refer to Abu Bakr radiallahu anhu as his brother. So he says that because he refers to me as his brother, would it be permissible for our families to kind of marry into one another? Would that be alright? Would he literally be considered an uncle to my daughter? And so she goes back to the Prophet and she says this question came up. And the Prophet says, Ana akhuka wa anta akhi fil Islam. That this type of brotherhood is a brotherhood and a sisterhood of faith. But it doesn't establish relations and it doesn't um, you know, prohibit marriage. It's not that type of a brotherhood, sisterhood. It's not biological, nor is it a relationship that is established through nursing, through milk. So it doesn't have any prohibition attached to it. It's just a spiritual relationship of brotherhood and sisterhood for the sake of Allah. So at that point in time, Abu Bakr radiallahu ta'ala anhu, um, one of the narrations also mentions that Mut'im bin Adi, who was one of the chiefs of the Quraysh, who had you know, shown some uh, support to Islam in the past, that there were some discussions in the past between Abu Bakr radiallahu ta'ala anhu and Mut'am bin Adi about the son of Mut'am bin Adi getting married to Aisha radiallahu ta'ala anha. And so Abu Bakr radiallahu ta'ala anhu goes to Mut'am bin Adi and lets him know that, you know, I have, we never, there was no marriage, there was only discussions. And this kind of serves as, as a precedent and an example for the fact that, you know, the Prophet ﷺ, first of all, was not aware that there were any ongoing discussions. And these were only just discussions that were, that had occurred maybe between the two fathers. But in either case, Mut'am bin Adi and Abu Bakr radiallahu ta'ala anhu basically go their own ways. They're like, yeah, we, you know, it, it was just a discussion a harmless discussion and there's no actual uh, you know promises that were made here no proposals that were actually exchanged here so that's when Abu Bakr radiallahu ta'ala anhu responds in the affirmative and then the Prophet sallallahu basically comes and the nikah the marriage ceremony between the Prophet sallallahu and Aisha radiallahu ta'ala anha is performed and they were officially married they did not begin to live together for another three years now, one obvious discussion that takes place here usually is about the age of Aisha radiallahu ta'ala anha at the time of her marriage to the Prophet sallallahu We'll be talking about that a little bit later. When we come to that particular point towards the end of the first year of Hijrah, when the actual walima, when they moved in together, when they began to live together as a couple, when the walima took place, we'll talk about that. We'll talk about this discussion and this issue at that particular time and place. So again, it kind of fits there. It's more appropriate there. Right now, the nikah was just performed, the katbal kitab, the basic just marriage ceremony was performed, but that was it. They did not begin to live together. The marriage was not consummated. There was no walima at this particular time, and so. This is basically what happened. The nikah was performed with Aisha radiallahu ta'ala anha. Now, the same woman Khawla 
bint Hakim, she goes to Sauda bint Zama'a. And she again approaches her in the same way that can you imagine, could you, can you guess what type of a blessing that Allah has entered into your home? And she says, what's that? And she, again, she says that the Messenger of Allah وسلم, I have come on his behalf with a proposal for him, from him for your hand in marriage. She responds by saying that I would love to marry the Prophet ﷺ. Now the brief little story about Sauda bin Zama'a is that her and her husband accepted Islam in the early days of Mecca. What happened after that time was that when the situation in Mecca became very difficult and the Muslims in the early part of the fifth year uh, of Nubuwa, of prophethood, when the Muslims migrated from Mecca to Abyssinia, Habasha, East Africa, at that particular time, Sauda radiallahu ta'ala anha and her husband were amongst those early immigrants. And they had migrated there to Abyssinia, to Habasha. One of the things that we've also talked about is the fact that after some time, after a few years, there was that rumor that basically spread all the way to Habasha, uh, to East Africa, that the people of Mecca have accepted Islam. And because of this, many people, um, they returned back. Many of the immigrants to Habasha, to Abyssinia, East Africa, they returned back to Mecca. Then when they found out that this news was not true, some of them decided to go back to East Africa, while some of them decided to basically stay on in Mecca. Sauda radiallahu ta'ala anha and her husband Sakran bin Amr, who was the brother of Suhail bin Amr, they, uh, her and her husband were amongst those Muslims that decided to come back to Mecca and settle down in Mecca. They, did, they decided not to return back to Habasha. It was at this particular time that Sakran, he got ill and then he passed away in Mecca as, as a Muslim. Alright, he passed away radiallahu ta'ala anhu in Mecca before the hijrah, before the migration. And so Sauda radiallahu ta'ala anha was a widow. She was a widow at this particular time. So now kind of going back to the timeline, Khawla bint Hakim goes with this marriage proposal to Sauda. Sauda radiallahu ta'ala anha says, I would love to marry the Prophet wasallam." And so she says to Khawla, however, I would appreciate it if you could go and officially deliver this proposal to my father. Now, of course, we know that in Islam, a woman who's been married previously, whether she be divorced or she be a widow, she does not require the consent of the wali. And so Arab tradition was similar to this, but nevertheless, out of respect for the father, she still said, I prefer, I prefer, and she was an older woman at this time, and she said that I prefer if you could still go and deliver the proposal to my father, because he would appreciate it. So the narrations mentioned that he was a very, very old man, extremely old. And this part is very interesting. He was not Muslim by most accounts. He was not Muslim, a very old man, a chief of Quraysh, and the narrations actually mentioned that it was a season of Hajj. And so while a lot of people were gone from Mecca to, you know, Arafah and Muzdalifah and these areas, Mina, where they would do the Hajj, he stayed back because he was too old to go. She goes and she greets him. And actually the narration mentions, فَحَيَّتْهُ بِتَحِيَّةِ الْجَاهِلِيَّةِ she greets him with the greeting of Jahiliyyah, not of the greeting of Islam, which tells us that he was not Muslim at this time. فَقَالَ And it says that his eyesight was so weak, he was almost blind at this point. He says, مَنْ هَذِهِ Who is this? 
So she says, Khawla bint Hakim. He says, Fama sha'nuki, what do you want? She says, Arsalani Muhammad ibn Abdullah. Again, she doesn't say Rasulullah Muhammad ibn Abdullah. He's not a Muslim. Muhammad, the son of Abdullah, the grandson of Abdul Muttalib, has sent me, Akhtubu alayhi sauda. To bring the proposal of your daughter Sauda. فَقَالَ كُفْءٌ كَرِيمٌ He said, this is a very noble match. كُفْءٌ كَرِيمٌ مَاذَا تَقُولُ صَاحِبَتُكِ He says, what does my daughter say about this? Your friend, my daughter, what does she say? قَالَ تُحِبُّ ذَاكَ She says she would love to marry the Prophet ﷺ. قَالَ أُدْعِيهَا لِي فَدَعَتْهَا So he says that, go and bring my daughter and I'll talk to her myself. So when she comes, Sauda radiallahu anha, he says, Ay bunayya, O beloved daughter, inna hathihi taz'am anna Muhammad ibn Abdullah bin Abdul Muttalib. And see, he's an older man, so that's why he takes the lineage of the Prophet sallallahu back to Abdul Muttalib, because he's like, Abdul Muttalib is my contemporary. That's how I know Muhammad. Alright, so he says that this woman, she claims that Muhammad ibn Abdullah bin Abdul Muttalib qada arsala yakhtubuki that she says, she claims that he is proposing, asking for your hand in marriage, وَهُوَ كُفْءٌ كَرِيمٌ And he is a very noble match. So, أَتُحِبِّينَ أَنْ أُزَوِّجَكِ بِهِ Do you want me to go ahead and marry you off to him? قَالَتْ نَعَمْ She said yes. So then he tells Khawla, now go and call Muhammad. فَجَاءَ رَسُولُ اللَّهِ صلى الله عليه وسلم فَزَوَّجَهَا إِيَّاهُ So that's when... The Prophet ﷺ comes, and the nikah again is performed, and the Prophet ﷺ is now married to Sauda bint Zama'a radiallahu ta'ala anha. What's interesting at this particular time is that her brother Abd ibn Zama'a, he was not only just, he, he was, not only was he not Muslim, and at this particular time, he would accept Islam later on, but at this time, he was not Muslim, and he was severely opposed to the Prophet ﷺ. He was very staunchly opposed to Islam and the Muslims and the Prophet ﷺ. So when he returns back from the season of Hajj, and he found out that my sister, while I was gone, got married to Muhammad ibn Abdullah, the narration says, He picked up dirt and rubbed it in his own head and threw dirt on his own head. And to basically express the fact that I can't believe this happened while I was gone. I've been ruined, I've been humiliated. My mortal enemy has married my sister. And he was just like tragically like upset because of this situation. So the narration mentions that, فَقَالَ بَعْدَ أَنْ أَسْلَمَ He would accept Islam later on. And after accepting Islam later on, when later on he would say, لَا عَمْرُكْ he says that, Wallahi, I swear by Allah, I swear by Allah, I was such a foolish man on that day that I threw dirt on my own head. That the Messenger of God would marry my sister Soda? What an unbelievable honor. I was a fool. I was a fool the day I behaved that day. Like he always, even though Islam removes and eradicates everything afterwards, right? But he just, he just felt bad. He just felt bad and he said, I, I regret acting like such a fool. 
So this is basically the story of how the Prophet ﷺ gets married to Sauda radiallahu ta'ala anha and the nikah to Aisha is performed and we'll talk about the age of Aisha, the marriage to Aisha. We'll talk about those more technicalities at the time of the consummation of the marriage. Because that's when the marriage is completely completed basically. The walima is performed. So we'll talk about that uh, towards the end of the first year of Hijrah. One of the things that I'll mention here that's very interesting, and again it shows you the quality and the character of the Prophet ﷺ. And it also shows you about Sauda the caliber of this woman. That when the marriage proposal went, that Ibn Abbas relates that when the Prophet ﷺ approached uh, and, and proposed Sauda bint Zama'a for marriage, وَكَانَتْ مُصِيبَةً وَكَانَتْ مُصِيبَةً كَانَ لَهَا خَمْسُ صَبِيَا أو مِنْ بَعْلٍ لَهَا مات. She had five, or some narrations say six children from her previous husband. So she had five, and some narrations say she had six children from her previous husband. فَقَالَ رَسُولَ اللَّهِ And apparently, one of the, what kind of fills in some of the gaps here, when the marriage proposal was first taken before, you know, goes to her father and everything goes through, apparently Sauda radiallahu ta'ala anha was a little hesitant. And she said, I'm going to need to speak to him first. So the Prophet you know, speaks to her and he says, minni. Why, why do you hesitate to marry me? قَالَتْ وَاللَّهِ يَا نَبِيَ اللَّهِ I swear to God, O Prophet of Allah, meaning that there's no, you know, hesitation for anything. Wallahi ya Nabi Allah, ma yamna'u ni minka illa an takuna ahab al-bariyati ilayya. What could ever stop me from wanting to marry you? You are the most beloved of all mankind to me. You are the messenger of Allah. Walakinni ukrim ukrimuka an yasghuwa ha'ulai sabiya inda ra'asika bukratan wa ashiyya. She says that, but I would want to honor you. I would want to, I would want to honor you, respect you. But I am worried that I have so many children that these children will basically, the way she kind of says it, like they will make noise around your head morning and evening. Like I, I have a lot of kids. And you know, and it'll, it'll, be, it'll be hectic. Like you'll be entering into the circus, right? So I, I'm hesitant because of that. I don't want my burden to become your burden. You are the messenger of God, the prophet of Allah. You have your own kids. You just suffered the loss of beloved family members. You have no ummah to take care of. You have to preach to all of mankind. You tend to all of us. Like I can't add this onto your shoulders. The prophet ﷺ says, فَهَلْ مَنَعَكِ مِنِّي شَيْءٌ غَيْرُ ذَلِكَ is there anything else other than this that is preventing you, that is making you hesitate in, you know, from marrying me? قالت لا والله. She says, no, absolutely not. This is the only thing. قال لها رسول الله صلى الله عليه وسلم يرحمك الله. In he says that may Allah have mercy on you. Meaning, makes du'a for her, saying that you are an amazing person. May Allah shower His mercy upon you. In the خير النساء رَكِبْنَا أَعْجَازَ الْإِبْلِ صَالِحُ نِسَاءِ قُرَيْشِ أَحْنَاهُ عَلَى وَلَدٍ فِي صِغَرِهِ وَأَرْعَاهُ عَلَى بَعْلٍ بِذَاتِ يَدِهِ The Prophet ﷺ says that the best women 
are those women, the pious, righteous women of Quraysh who ride camels. Who ride camels. What he means by that is that they're very capable. They're very independent. They're very independent. They're very capable. They can take care of most things on their own. Very strong, very confident, very knowledgeable, very capable. Like confident, strong women. So Quraysh women, strong women. And pious and righteous. So a pious, righteous, Qurayshi, strong, confident, independent woman. That's the best woman that anybody could ever marry. Ahnahu ala waladin fi sigharihi. And she, in spite of being so strong and being so confident and so independent, they are very, they are very merciful, very loving, very affectionate. They are very affectionate with their children when their children are small. They're loving women. They're strong, they're independent, but they're loving women. But they're honorable women. They would protect the honor and the integrity of the home and the husband at any, by any means, at any cost. So just look at how he describes her. Strong, pious, righteous, confident, independent, affectionate, loving towards her children. But at the same time, a woman of integrity and honor. So he praises her in this way and he says, Why wouldn't I want to marry you? That this won't get in the way. This is no worry, no concern. And so basically now the Prophet ﷺ, as we talked about, was married to Sauda bint Zama'ah at this particular time. Now fast forwarding to where we were in the seerah of the Prophet ﷺ, we talked about how the Prophet ﷺ, he arrives in Medina, settles in Medina, into the home temporarily uh, of Abu Ayyub al-Ansari radiallahu ta'ala anhu, establishes the masjid, surveys Medina, starts to establish some of the political, you know, religious alliances within Medina, the Jewish tribes, some of the leaders of Aus and Khazraj. Basically, he's now got things kind of in order, things are coming together. He's got some of the major immediate things that needed to be done. As soon as he arrived, those things have been nailed down. And things are starting to move forward. It was at this particular time that the Prophet of Allah وسلم, Abdullah bin Urayqit, Abdullah bin Urayqit, who was the guide who had brought the Prophet وسلم, and Abu Bakr anhu from Mecca all the way to Medina. It was time now, he had recovered, he had taken some rest, he had stayed a couple of weeks. The Prophet ﷺ had taken care of him, had paid him in full, everything was done. It was now time for him to head back to Mecca. So the Prophet ﷺ told him, hold on for a few days, we'll take care of you, we'll host you. Because when you go back to Mecca, I'd like for you to take a couple of people back to Mecca with you. And so now he heads back to Mecca, and the Prophet ﷺ sent two people with him. The first amongst them was Zayd ibn Haritha. If you remember, you recall, Zayd ibn Haritha is like the adopted son of the Prophet ﷺ. Alright, he was the, 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 the assistant, the khadim of the personal assistant of the Prophet ﷺ. The third person to accept Islam lived in the household, grew up in the home of the Prophet ﷺ. And he was very beloved to the Prophet ﷺ. The Prophet ﷺ sent Zayd bin Haritha and Abu Rafi'ah, Abu Rafi'ah, 
who was also a freed slave of the Prophet ﷺ. So Zayd bin Haritha and Abu Rafi'ah had both been freed from slavery by the Prophet ﷺ. That's why they were both known as Mawla Rasulillah. Zayd, Mawla Rasulillah, and Abu Rafi'ah, Mawla Rasulillah So they were both freed slaves of the Prophet ﷺ, which again, I'm not gonna take the conversation in that direction, but the question comes up a lot of times about slavery and Islam and things like this. The, the Prophet ﷺ, Abu Bakr radiallahu ta'ala, it is the sunnah of these great men, and these remarkable people that they used to free slaves. They would free slaves. So Abu Rafi and Zayd ibn Haritha who were freed slaves of the Prophet ﷺ, he told, sent them with this guide, Abdullah bin Uraiqit, to go back to Makkah and to bring back the family of the Prophet ﷺ and the family of Abu Bakr anhu and the family of Zayd ibn Haritha. So three families that were still back there, Zayd bin Haritha's family, Abu Bakr's family, and of course the Messenger of Allah ﷺ, his family. So they sent them back with a couple of camels and 500 darahim. The purpose of the 500 darahim was to purchase a couple of more camels and at the same time to buy whatever provisions would be needed for these three families to make the journey all the way from Mecca to Medina. So they reach back into Mecca. They gather the families together on behalf of the Prophet ﷺ. They gathered together Sauda radiallahu ta'ala anha the wife of the Prophet ﷺ, her children, and along with that, the two daughters of the Prophet ﷺ who were still there in Mecca, which was Ummu Kulthum and Fatima radiallahu ta'ala anha. Alright, radiallahu ta'ala anhum. Right, so these were the individuals. Now the older two daughters of the Prophet ﷺ, Zainab was married to Abu Al-As bin Rabi'ah, who was not Muslim at this time. She was, but he was not. This is before the hukum came in Islam, that such a couple would have to separate. So because it was still the early days of the ummah, early days of Islam, for all intensive purposes. So her husband who was not Muslim yet, so she stayed back with her husband and her children, her family basically. The second daughter of the Prophet ﷺ, Ruqayya, she was the wife of Uthman ibn Affan, radiallahu ta'ala anhu. Uthman ibn Affan and his wife had migrated to Habasha, Africa, and they went straight from Habasha, Abyssinia, East Africa, they went straight from there to Medina. So one, the second daughter of the Prophet ﷺ was already in Medina with him, along with her husband, Uthman ibn Affan. So the two daughters, Ummu Kulthum and Fatima are back in Mecca, and the new, the, the, the second wife of the Prophet ﷺ, their stepmother, Sauda bint Zama'ah with her children. So this is one household, this is one family. They were gathered together. The second household, the second family was the family of Abu Bakr And those again, there were four individuals that are mentioned. And there were probably some others as well. Uh, there, were, there were definitely others as well. It mentions that it was... Abdullah bin Abi Bakr is specifically mentioned by name. Abdullah bin Abi Bakr. Abdullah, the son of Abu Bakr, radiallahu ta'ala anhu, is mentioned by name. He was there. The wife of Abu Bakr, radiallahu ta'ala anhu, was known by the name of Umm Ruman. She was there. And the two daughters of Abu Bakr, radiallahu anhu, which was Asma and Aisha. Asma and Aisha, may Allah be pleased with them. So this household, this is the family of Abu Bakr, they also all gathered together and prepared. Now they're coming on their journey as well. And lastly, Zayd ibn Haritha rounded up his family. His family was his wife, one of the mothers to the Prophet ﷺ. If you remember, Ummu Ayman, the woman Barakah, Ummu Ayman. 
Right? We talked about her back in the day. The woman that the Prophet used to address is Ya Um. Ya Um. You know, a lot of times, especially it's um, some some folks might be listening to the recording later, but it's February, and you know, a lot of times there's a lot of discussion about Black History Month, and you know, we as Muslims as well, we have to understand and appreciate, you know, all the different elements and segments of our community. The Prophet ﷺ established not only just a vision, but he established a reality of a global ummah. An ummah of all types of background, all colors, all shapes, all sizes, people from all different backgrounds. And he brought everyone together under one unified banner of La ilaha illallah Muhammadur Rasulullah. With zero differences made between them, amongst them. And that's not just rhetoric, that's not just cheap speech, unfortunately, how we end up sometimes practicing. May Allah forgive us. But this was lived by the Prophet ﷺ. When the Prophet ﷺ led the prayer, the first person standing directly behind him, calling the iqamah was Bilal radiallahu ta'ala anhu. The only man to stand on top of the Kaaba and call the Adhan from there at the insistence, at the instruction, at the hukum, the Amr of Rasulullah wasallam. You know, and, and one of the most remarkable things was Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, you know one thing that we say about the Anbiya and the Prophets is that they were chosen, they were created, they were selected and they were designed by Allah to serve a purpose. And everything that occurred in the life of the Prophet ﷺ, even pre-Nubuwa, led up to the mission of prophethood itself. It was all the divine plan. And you see that from very childhood, the right hand, like the best friend of the mother of the Prophet ﷺ, was an African woman by the name of Baraka, Ummu Ayman. She was the best friend of the mother of the Prophet ﷺ. She was so close that when on the journey on which the mother of the Prophet passed away to Medina, coming back to Mecca from Medina, Yathrib at that time, it was a Mu'ayman who was with them. It was a Mu'ayman who hugged and cradled and held the Prophet and consoled him and comforted him like one of her own when his mother passed away. It was a Mu'ayman who buried the mother of the Prophet. Ummu Ayman had nursed, not only Ummu Ayman, but the Prophet was nursed by two African women, two black women, Ummu Ayman and Thuwayba. He had two mothers, two milk mothers, nurses, who were African. So the Prophet had diversity in his own life, in his own background. And, and the Prophet wasn't, it wasn't like it was just, yeah, it was some cheap labor that was hired. Wala'ayadhu billah, thumala'ayadhu billah. No, absolutely not. Ummu Ayman. The Prophet ﷺ kept her so close to him. The Prophet ﷺ announced this is a woman of paradise. When she was getting married, the Prophet ﷺ said, whoever wants to marry a woman of paradise, in this dunya, in this world, will marry a Mu'ayman. People used to refer to her as the mother of the Prophet ﷺ. He used to introduce her as, this is my mother. And when he would call on her like in public, he wouldn't call on her like, Ya Baraka. The Prophet used to say, Ya Um. Mom. He used to call her mom, mother. I mean, think about that. So this is Ummu Ayman. So she was married to Zayd ibn Haritha, and they had a son by the name of Usama. So at this particular time, Zayd ibn Haritha and gathers together his family, which is his wife, Ummu Ayman, and um, their son, Usama. May Allah be pleased with them. He gathers them together and they all basically now get together and they all set out from Mecca on their journey, on their way back to Medina or going to Medina, excuse me, migrating to Medina. There's a little bit of a story interesting 
that it talks about how along the way the camel that Aisha radiallahu ta'ala anha and her mother Umm Ruman, the camel that they were riding started to kind of wander and freak out and started to kind of lose it. You know, it just started to kind of get out of it. And it wasn't like behaving, it wasn't being reined in. So she started to get very worried. She started to get extremely worried. The mother of Aisha radiallahu ta'ala anha, she started calling out, وَعُرُسَاهُ وَابْنَتَاهُ She started getting really worried and calling out like, what do we do, what do we do? Aisha radiallahu ta'ala anha says, at that time I heard somebody say, we just heard a voice that said, أَرْسِلِي khitama." Leave its rope. And usually like if somebody comes up to you, so if you're riding a camel, and it starts to kind of go here and there, misbehave or whatever the issue is, I would come up to you and I say, Arsil khitama. It would mean leave the rope, leave the reins. But the reason why I say leave the rope or leave the reins is meaning what? Hand it over to me. I say leave it so that I can take a hold of it and I'll lead the animal. So she says, we heard somebody say, just a voice, فَسَمِعَتُ قَائِلًا يَقُولُ Just heard somebody saying, أَرْسِلِي خِتَامًا فَأَرْسَلْتُ خِتَامًا Aisha says, I was sitting in front of my mother, she was kind of looking after me, so I left the rope. فَوَقَفَ بِإِذْنِ اللَّهِ All of a sudden, by itself, the camel stopped, as if somebody stopped it. I just left the range and it stopped. وَسَلَّمَنَ اللَّهُ عَزَّ وَجَلْ and Allah protected us because the camel started going kind of crazy, started wandering here and there, running fast, and you know, started kind of losing it. And so it, I just heard somebody say, Leave the range. I left it. And it stopped. And Allah saved us. And then she says, Fataqaddamu. And then after that, the camel just walked forward with the rest of the group all the way the rest of the way. As if somebody was leading it miraculously. Because this was the family of the Prophet, the family of Abu Bakr, radiallahu ta'ala anhu. So Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala arranged for their divine protection. Also one of the things that it mentions is that Asma bint Abi Bakr, the older daughter of Abu Bakr radiallahu ta'ala anhu, she was the one who was married to Az-Zubayr ibn al-Awam. And she was actually pregnant at this time. She was expecting their son Abdullah ibn Zubayr. Abdullah ibn Zubayr, the famed ibn Zubayr who would later on not only be a sahabi of the Prophet ﷺ, not only would he learn from his illustrious father and his illustrious mother, but he would be a very close personal student of his aunt, one of the most knowledgeable people of this ummah, Aisha radiallahu ta'ala anha, who directly took her deen, thousands of ahadith, from directly from the mouth and the actions of the Prophet ﷺ, he would be her personal student. Alright, the famed Abdullah ibn Zubayr. And so Asma radiallahu ta'ala anha was expecting him at this time. And so she made this journey pregnant, expecting a child. And in this manner, they basically reached um, Al-Madinatul Munawwara safe and sound, arrived there safely. Alhamdulillah, bi-idnillah. And at this particular time, the Prophet uh, they they actually mentioned that they were then hosted in the home of one of the Sahaba radiallahu ta'ala anhum. And at this point in time, the Prophet ﷺ instructed them to basically construct some uh, some rooms. وَبُنِيَ لِي حَوْلَ مَسْجِدِهِ الشَّرِيفِ حُجَرٌ Some rooms were constructed around the, around the masjid of the Prophet ﷺ. So him and his family could basically live there. وَكَانَتْ مَسَاكِنْ قَصِيرَةَ الْبِنَاءِ 
They're very small, very short, low ceilings, very humble places. Qariibat al-fina. Very loosely constructed, like not some elaborate construction, very simple. Al-Hasan al-Basri says, وَكَانَ غُلَامًا مَعَ أُمِّهِ خَيْرَ مَوْلَىٰ أُمِّ سَلَمَىٰ Al-Hasan al-Basri, the famous Al-Hasan al-Basri, Tabi'i, he says that I was, with, I was a young boy, I was with my mother in Medina. لَقَدْ كُنْتُ أُنَالُ أَطْوَلَ سَقْفٍ فِي حُجْرِ النَّبِيِّ صَلَى اللَّهِ عَلَيْهِ بِيَدِي He says, when I was a child in Medina with my mother, at that time, as a child, I could reach up and put, reach up to the roof of the tallest of the homes of the Prophet ﷺ. I could reach up, I could jump up and grab onto the roof of the highest ceilings of any of the homes of the Prophet ﷺ. That gives you an idea. Alright, Ibn Kathir says that Al Hasan Basri was a taller man, so even as a child he was a little bit taller, but then how tall are you still talking? You're not talking about a seven foot, like eight year old or ten year old. You're not talking about that. A taller kid means maybe he was like four, four and a half feet tall. So he would raise his hands up, jump up, and he could grab onto the roof. Not even six feet. So this, this was the humble type of construction of the home of the Prophet ﷺ. As Suhaili uh, mentions, كانت مساكنه عليه الصلاة والسلام مبنية من جريد عليه طين That the home of the Prophet ﷺ was constructed from these uh, date palms and their branches and the, the trunks of it that basically mud and dirt was basically put on top of. بعضها من حجارة مردومة That some of them were made from some stones. Basically stones that would be gathered and put together and then some mud and clay would be put on it to kind of hold the stones in place. Some parts of the wall were made in this way. وَسُقُوفُهَا كُلَّهَا مِنْ جَرِيدٍ All the roofs were all just branches of trees. That, those were the roofs of all of the rooms and the homes. Alright? And then of course as it mentions about Al-Hasan al-Basri, it actually says about the door of the Prophet ﷺ, Very interesting. That it says that when you wanted to knock on the door of the Prophet ﷺ, you could knock like with your nails very lightly. Like think about what that means. If you have a big door, a heavy door, you have to knock harder. The bigger the door, the heavier the door, the thicker the door is, then the harder you have to knock. You didn't have to knock like that on the door of the Prophet You could go like this. Because it was just very light. It was like a plank. That's all it was. And that was the door of the Prophet And this basically tells you that it wasn't even like a proper door, like the way that we think of. Um, and sometimes, and it actually mentions that um, when later on, when some of the homes of, the, of some of these rooms were later emptied out after the Prophet ﷺ passed away, or and especially, and then his wives continued to live in those rooms, when some of the wives of the Prophet ﷺ passed away, and those rooms were now emptied out, they basically just put like a rock up against the door to kind of keep it closed, to keep it shut. They just put a rock and that's it. It didn't even lock. There wasn't even a lock. They couldn't even lock it up. They would just put a rock against the door to basically keep it closed. And that was the home of the Prophet ﷺ. These little rooms 
where rocks were gathered together, mud and some clay was put on them. And all the gaps and the holes were filled in with like branches of trees and leaves of date palms. And then the roof was basically covered with branches and leaves. The roof was barely five and a half, maybe six feet tall. Barely. And it was just one singular small little room. And that from other narrations we know, Aisha radiallahu ta'ala anha says that her hujar, her room, her apartment was actually so small, so tiny, that when the Prophet ﷺ would pray at night, the qiyam, her legs would extend out in front of him. And he would have to do sujood like over her legs. He would have to move her legs aside and do sajda. And then when he would stand back up, because he would do long qiyam, it was a qiyam prayers, night prayers, the hajjud prayers, she would extend her legs back. And again, when he would come into sujood, he would have to move her legs aside. He couldn't even do sajda. Her legs would get in the way. If one person was praying, the other couldn't sleep properly. That was how small and tiny it was. This was the home of Sayyidul Awalina wal Akhirin. Sayyidu Wuldi Adam, Yawm Al-Qiyamah This is the home of the great messenger of Allah Muhammad Rasulullah Khatim Al-Anbiya, Sayyidu Al-Mursaleen Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam And his family came at this particular time And these rooms were constructed around the masjid of the Prophet Sallallahu And then his family took up residence there And he moved in with his family into these rooms, into these homes so we see the Prophet ﷺ, a bunch of lessons that we learned today, just to kind of recap, because we talked about a few different things. We see the Prophet ﷺ marrying Sauda radiallahu ta'ala anha. Keep this in mind especially, and I'll, I'll, I'll remind us. I'll talk about it again. We need this reminder. When we talk about the marriage of the Prophet ﷺ to Aisha, keep in mind about Sauda radiallahu ta'ala anha being an elderly woman, and having five, maybe six children. And the Prophet ﷺ very gladly, very enthusiastically marrying her and saying that it is my pleasure, my honor to take care of you and your children. He was a family man. The Prophet ﷺ making sure everything was safe and secure and everything was done before bringing his family over. And then we also see and learn about Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala divinely miraculously protecting and guiding and bringing the family of the Prophet ﷺ safely to Al-Madinatul Munawwara. And lastly and finally, we see the humble living conditions of Muhammad Rasulullah I always talk about this, and we talked about the masjid of the Prophet ﷺ a few weeks ago, a few sessions ago. Look, there's no guilt in regards to this. The idea is not guilt. That when we go back to our homes that we feel guilty. But we do need some level of awareness. There does need to be a reality check. Who are we? Where are we? What are we blessed with? How do we live our lives? At the very least, it should take away any semblance, any idea of complaining about anything. You know, we joke about it a lot. First world problems or, you know, what do we have to complain about? Whining and crying. But really... That's exactly what it is. Just think, do we really have legitimate grounds to complain about anything? Alhamdulillah, thumma alhamdulillah. Right? Thank Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. We're safe, we're sound. We live luxuriously compared to how the Prophet ﷺ lived. So that's one thing. No guilt, but at the least awareness of how blessed we are, how fortunate we are. Number two, the Prophet ﷺ lived in these conditions. And it's an interesting thought. Not that he did everything he did in spite of these living conditions. But the Prophet ﷺ lived like this so that he could do what he did. 
Because all that energy and all that effort and all that all those resources and all that time and all everything was diverted towards accomplishing and fulfilling the mission. We also carry a responsibility. We've inherited this deen, this religion from the Prophet. We are beneficiaries of those sacrifices he made. And part of his legacy, and part of our heritage, and our responsibility is to try to carry this legacy forward. أَدْعُوا إِلَى اللَّهِ هَذِهِ سَبِيلِي أَدْعُوا إِلَى اللَّهِ عَلَى بَصِيرَةً أَنَا وَمَنِ اتَّبَعَنِي The Prophet ﷺ said, this is my path, I call to Allah with foresight, with conviction, with confidence, with vision, with knowledge, with wisdom. أَنَا وَمَنِ اتَّبَعَنِي I and anyone who claims to follow me. This is what they do, this is how they live their life, this is their primary objective. We've been blessed with Islam, but not so that we can just sit back, say Alhamdulillah, and then be, you know, just, just exert our superiority or have some level of spiritual elitism and just talk about how terrible and how wretched and how, you know, doomed everyone else is. But our responsibility is to take this message forward. And at some level, again, no guilt, but in spite of all the luxury, in spite of all the luxury that we live in, Number one, be grateful. Number two, let that motivate us at least at some level to do something for the deen of Allah. To do something to carry the message of Islam forward. To do something to pass on the legacy of Rasulullah That we have benefited from. That we will pass it on. That we will be involved. That we will do our part. And we will play our part at some level. May Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala give us the ability to practice everything that we've said and heard. Subhanallah wa bihamdihi subhanakallahumma bihamdik nashhadu an la ilaha illa anta nastaghfiruka wa natubu ilaik